pray, and then we'll take a look this evening at chapter 7. And the whole idea is that boasting is evil in the sight of the Lord. But rather, the Lord in our weakness can then be found strong. And the whole idea is weakness. There's a necessity of weakness in a believer that is required for God to show his strength. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the songs and the hymns of praise we have sung, the songs that have taught us more of you and your glory. And we're thankful now that we can turn to the word of God and we can study together here in Judges chapter 7. Father, I pray that you will keep us from arrogance, from puffed up spirit that would think that we are greater than we are. Father, we realize that you will give grace your favor, which is undeserved, unmerited favor to those who are humble of heart. Thank you, Father, for this teaching of the scriptures. And even though every judge in the book of Judges is flawed and failing, we do have a Savior and a judge who is perfect, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful that through the means of the cross, our salvation has been procured for all eternity. Thank you for such a great salvation and a great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Gideon, wow, what a, uh, the judges, as they progress through history, become less and less men of, and women of integrity. They become more corrupt in nature and very flawed, as we see now in 100 verses in the life of Gideon. Remember that Gideon has three battles to fight. And God raises him up out of the tribe of Manasseh, a fearful, timid man, and gives him three battles. And the first battle we saw this morning, it was the shrine of Baal, which was located where? In his father's house. In, in Gideon's, Gideon's living at home with his mom and dad. And his father, Joash, is like the priest, a Jewish man who is a priest of the Baal cult. And after the Lord has called Gideon, and now begin to work in his life and, and uh, teach him the way of faith. Now Gideon has the confidence to go at night and tear down the shrine of Baal, kill his father's seven-year-old bull, very expensive, by the way, and put an altar to Jehovah up. And of course, the men of the community, this is what I can't understand. How could the Jewish men of that community so want to kill Gideon for tearing down a false the place of, of worship. They had totally um, forsaken the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. You know, you shall have no other gods before the Lord your God. Wow. So anyways, Gideon had victory. He showed that he was willing to stand up with, for the Lord and to go against the Canaanites and their false religions. And it was amazing. Then remember how the Spirit of God literally took on Gideon as clothes? And then Gideon blew his trumpet and he amassed an army of 32,000 men. Not a great amount, but it was nothing to be, to be um, winked at. It was a decent group, 32,000 volunteers. But he was going against 135,000 Midianites. We'll find that later, that that's how many Midianites there were. Which is a one to four ratio. Which, by the way, is not impossible if you have the right, if you have the right battle strategy a group that is one compared to four could actually win as long as every Jewish soldier or man was able to kill four of the enemy, right? They could win. So that's where we left it. And then, of course, the whole fleece situation, which I addressed this morning. 
So I'm going to take you through a few things that God does as he teaches Gideon that boasting is evil, and if we want the Lord's strength, we must be humble. So I have three points. My first point is God is going to condense Gideon's army. Totally the opposite approach that man would think. Here's what God's word says in, in Judges chapter 7. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, that's 32,000, rose early and encamped to get beside the well of Herod. Mayan Herod. Okay. So Herod, get this. I love how God has such a sense of humor. I don't know if this was named because of Gideon, but the, Herod in Hebrew means trembling. Trembling. So Gideon is not the only thing shaking and trembling. The, the, the stream of water is as well. So here they are. Can you picture? I can take you there right now. There is a, a hill, uh, Mount Gilboa, and up on the hill would have been Gideon with, with his 32,000 men, and then there literally from the base of the mountain comes a stream, and it's called Mayan Herod, the, the trembling stream. And it is there that Gideon is with his 32,000 men, and across the little bit of the Jezreel Valley, this beautiful flat farmland, is another hill, and on that hill were the Midianites, 135,000 men, plus, I'm sure, many others, because they brought women and children when they encamped, and there were, we'll see, camels that were uncountable, as many as the sand of the seashore. You're talking a massive group of animals and people across this field. Can you picture it? It says here, the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray, the hill of the teacher in the valley. Verse 2. This again is condensing the army. It's the necessity of weakness. The battle is not far away. Here is what verse 2 says. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Okay, stop. I would expect God to say, the Midianites are too many for you. I need to increase your army. You, 32,000 is not enough. I want, I'm going to get you, hold tight, Gideon. I'm going to bring people from other tribes. They're going to come and help you, and we're going to get this thing done once for all. That is not what God says. God says, Gideon, your army of 32,000 is too many against this gigantic, massive army that's assembled. But there's a reason, verse 2 tells us. It's a problem of the heart. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me. Hey, anytime that we are puffed up or boastful, if we are proud, literally it is against God. We are, we are literally saying, God, you are unimportant. You are not that great. I am far greater. And if I could kill you and take you off the throne, this world would be a better place because I would be a far better God than you. That is what arrogance and pride is saying. It is literally taking a knife or a weapon to God to seek to defeat him. And that is why God hates it so much. He knows this. Israel, if they won with 32,000 people, they would go around saying, look what the greatest army we are. Boy, are we powerful. Oh, did we outsmart them? Oh, we are the best ever. And God says, I hate pride. As a matter of fact, you know what the Bible verse says? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is true throughout all of time. When it says God resists the proud, the word resists... It means to arrange an army against. To come up and raise an army. So God literally says, if there's an arrogant man or woman, particularly in his family, he would raise up a whole heavenly army against that individual. But for the humble, 
for the one who is truly broken, that realizes I have no resources, no ability, there's nothing that I have to contribute or offer that would bring any merit to the situation. To that individual, God pours out lavishly his favor upon us. So there's two options. What is the one letter that is going to kill the church? The letter I. It's the letter I. It's the letter that says, I want my way. I want this, or I will upset the place until I get it, and then I'm going to leave. I mean, literally, that which will destroy the church is the spirit of arrogance and pride. What was, what was, Eve's, big, what was Eve's big issue? It wasn't the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was not the problem. It was the problem in the fact that God said not to eat it. The problem was of the heart, not the fruit. Eve's heart said, I want something that God will not give me or hasn't given me, so I will go around him to get it. I will become my own God. I will become as wise as him. Then I can control the affairs of my own life. And then, Eve, and then Adam, of course, the same thing. And that is what gets us into trouble all the time. It is when we, don't, when we think we don't need God, we can go on our own, that God says, I will raise up all my heavenly hosts to go against that type of person. It is just evil. And he knows Israel would take full advantage of that. So what God has to do is teach Israel a huge lesson, of course, that which he will teach us. So here's what it says in verse 2 at the end. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me. By the way, glory only belongs to God. God does not share his glory with pastors of churches. You know that. He doesn't say, well, yeah, it's, you know, we'll give the pastor a lot of glory and I get some glory too. God says, no, I don't share glory with anybody. All the glory, all of it, doesn't go to the vessel. It goes to the, it goes to the father, the potter, correct? Do you remember how it, it says in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, the axe... The Acts never says, look at what a great job I do cutting wood. Man, am I the best Acts ever. Why can the Acts not say it? Because for the Acts to be used, it's the woodsman. He's the one that gets the glory because he's the one swinging the tool. So there's no way the tool can get the glory for what's going on. And anybody who, and I'll tell you what, it happens a lot in ministry. People love to tout their accomplishments and tout their abilities, and it grieves God. And, it's, and it harms the church. We're just the tool in, in the hands of the master. And so God knows, lest Israel would claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, so this is going to be a public thing, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. There was a clause in Deuteronomy that in the military of Israel, anyone who was afraid to fight was allowed to go without any punishment. They could go home. They didn't want scaredy cats in the ranks, and that would just harm the battle scene, not help it. So anybody who was afraid could simply go, and there was no penalty. That was in Deuteronomy. So here the same thing is applied. 32,000 men. Gideon stands up and says, uh, I just got a message from the Lord. Now, by the way, this is, why, this is why Gideon's mentioned in Hebrews, because he's acting on faith. The first battle against Baal, phenomenal victory, great job. This one, phenomenal way to go, Gideon. The third battle, he actually undoes everything that happens up to this point because of boasting. You know why, right? 
after the great victory that we're going to read about right now, everybody in the nation said, Gideon, we want you to be king and your sons and your grandsons. In other words, start a kingship. This, by the way, is the message from in two weeks. Start a kingship, and we want you, your sons and grandsons, to carry on forever for our country. And Gideon said, there is no way I will be your king. Only God is your king. And I think, great, right? Except everything he does after that, he makes himself a king. Although not in title, he does it indeed. And he ends up killing a lot of people and ruining a lot of things. Be careful, right? We need to be careful. So here, there's 10,000 now. This, by the way, is a 1 to 14 ratio. Now at this point in the, in the war, every Jewish soldier has to kill 14 Midianites instead of four. It's possible, right? It's possible, I think, if you're really good. Come on, Shamgar killed how many? 600 at one time. All right, so you have a 1 to 14 ratio, but listen to this, verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Oh no. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. Verse 5, again, this is why Gideon's in the Bible in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. He obeyed God's word without question. Finally, look at verse 5. He brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Okay, now, I honestly, this is only my perspective, I don't think there's anything godly about lapping the water like this versus another way. I, I don't see in the text that some are less militaryish or soldierish, not watchful, not sober-minded. I mean, I've heard all sorts of weird things over the years. I honestly, just in the text, I think God is simply saying, I've got to whittle the army down somehow, and I'm just going to do it this way. So anyways, he ends up, all we know is he ends up with a group of 300 men, which is a 1 to 450 ratio. Now every Jewish person has to kill 450 enemy soldiers in order to, be, to win the battle. Now we're talking impossible, they're not going to win. It's a death sentence. It is a suicide mission. You agree? But isn't this where God has to bring us? All right. So in 2 Corinthians 12, listen. So let me tell you what happened in 2 Corinthians 12 that goes along with this. The Apostle Paul, was he not one of the most learned men of the day? And wasn't he trained in oratory and all sorts of wonderful things? As I mentioned this morning, he chose not to use those, but came trembling and fearful preaching the gospel. So in, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says to the Corinthians, because they want him to boast. He, see, he doesn't go around elevating himself. But the false teachers, they were elevating themselves. They had pictures. They had um, re- letters of recommendation. And everybody was like, Paul, how come you're just like a nobody compared to these great men of the false teachers? And Paul says, don't make me boast, because that's just what a foolish person does. But you're making me boast, so I'm going to boast. And when he boasts, he boasts about how weak he is. But in 2 Corinthians 12, God takes Paul, probably in in Lystra, on the first missionary journey, when he was stoned to death. Probably then, I'm guessing, God brought him up to heaven 
So look out on heaven. And then brought him back to earth. Like we were talking about tonight. You know what Paul saw? He saw the throne room of God. He saw the risen Savior. He saw the holy angels. He saw Old Testament men and women. He saw New Testament men and women that have died before, he, yeah, before him, of course. He saw the streets of gold. He saw the new city, Jerusalem. And now he's back on earth. And, you know, he could have gone around saying, all right, you guys, my price for preaching at your church just went up because I've got things to tell you you will not believe. And hallelujah. And he could have gone out and been so full of himself. And the Lord knew Paul's heart. And the Lord said, Paul, and he says it twice, lest you be exalted by these revelations. What does it mean to be exalted? To be arrogant. Lest you be exalted because of what you know and saw, I'm going to humble you with the thorn in the flesh, and you're going to have to carry that with you the rest of your life. So every time you feel the agony of that thorn, you're going to remember, you are nothing, but I am everything. And, God, and Paul pleaded with God how many times? Three times to have that thorn taken away. Had God taken the thorn away, you know what Paul would have been? The most arrogant, smug teacher around. But God said, no, you're going to keep the thorn, and you're going to be humble, because I said so. And you know what Paul said? God's grace is sufficient for me, because when I am made, when I am made weak, then God looks strong. Then God is strong. See, isn't that what it's all about? Man, the day we start thinking we've got it all together and we're the best and whatever is the day we fall. So this is the same thing. Well, he sends the rest away. Uh, Verse 8, So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. All right, so now he's only got 300 men up on the hillside. My second point. The first point is the condensing of the army. Now it's the calming of the general. Because you know what we're like? We are frail human beings. And we may think we have great, great faith one moment, and the next moment we are unsure of life, period, right? You guys understand that sometimes we're on the mountaintop, and then the next thing you know, we're in the valley, and we wonder, how did we get here? So Gideon, by now, you would think he's learned his lesson, but no, he, he's in his heart, he's like, I know God is going to make this happen, but now we are tiny and they are big and it's, we're going to die. It's going to be suicide and the pain of a sword cutting my head off is going to hurt. Is what he's thinking. Verse 9. It happened on the same night, so now he's the same day that he's reduced to 300, that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've delivered it into your hand. But... If you are afraid to go down, now notice Gideon doesn't have to ask. God initiates. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. You know what I see here? God is so patient with us. Isn't he so long-suffering? You would think after 25 years, my faith would be gigantic, wouldn't you? Being in the Word of God almost every single day. I mean, I mean, I think there's been days when I haven't 
maybe opened the Bible, but I've always had a scripture verse in my mind or heart. You would think my faith... No, that's just not the way it works. It's just, for me, it's just like Gideon. That's why I just think, man, I'm just like him. But then God says, okay, Gideon, I will help you again. And I will give you some confidence. You sneak down to the Midianite camp, 135,000 of them down there, sneak to the edge of the camp, listen to their conversation, and then you'll be good. So this is what happens, verse 12. Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. Look at the emphasis on numbers. Numerous as locusts. Their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, these are two Midianites. I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. I love it. You want to know what the cheapest, poorest grain was? Barley. It was like... A barley loaf of bread was so insignificant. It was like the poor man's food. So you have a little bagel, picture a little bagel, rolling into camp. It hits a tent, and they're like, has a bagel ever knocked a tent down? Maybe once. I was actually in the Sinai Desert sleeping in a tent. True story, it was a one-man tent, and it would not stay up. It would collapse even with the slightest breeze. So maybe a bagel would take that tent down, but not one of these Midianite tents, which had big posts and you know, big, big uh, goatskin and camelskin uh, or, or goatskin um, canopies and stuff like that. The, the, it's like this. It's like if we were to have a, a bowling activity and you guys are all bowling and getting strikes left and right, and I pull out a little BB and I go up and I roll a little BB down and you guys would all be laughing at me like, that's not going to knock a pin down. But as it goes down the bowling lane, it hits the first pin and then it hits all the pins and it's, it's not only knocks them over, but it smashes them and blows them up to dust. But you guys would be like, whoa, now that, that, I mean, that's an insignificant little thing that has massive power, right? So here, the little bagel, barley bagel, has no power, but yet it just conquers. And so the Midianites know this, and Gideon's like, hey, wait a minute, I'm the barley loaf. The Midianites are dwelling in tents, numerous as locusts. We're going to win this thing. Pretty awesome how God caters to us, and he gives us the word for the day. He gives us the word for the moment. Verse, 14, uh, verse 15. My third point. First point was God condenses the army. Then he has to calm his general down again. And now comes the victory. I call it crushing the enemy. He's going to crush the enemy. Verse 15. So it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, here is what makes him a great man, that he worshipped. He is now worshipping the one true God. He's giving glory and adoration to the, place that, that the person who deserves it, Jesus Christ. This is what makes him the godly man that we know. He returned to the camp of Israel. He said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Notice, he's quoting scripture. He's quoting what God said to him, and he's confident. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies. So we have three companies of 100 men. He put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, 
Then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So they made some kind of encampment around the perimeter. Now, by the way, if you have a trumpet in one hand and a pitcher with a torch in it in the other, like what hand do you have with the sword? No. So you have 300 men, no weapons. Like no backups, no weapons. They are going into battle without a weapon. No, but by the way, did you guys know the end of the story before we started tonight? Yes, of course. We've heard it for a long time. They did not know what was going to happen. True? As far as they know, this would be the end of their life. They are not going to see another sunrise. As far as they know, unless God does something absolutely miraculous, the Midianites are going to be stirred from camp. They will easily chase down 300 men who have no, who have no weapons, and they will be dead. But they're willing to go anyways. That is really remarkable. Now it's getting exciting. Um, I know our time is short, but we're almost done. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever been willing to look at God's word for the New Testament church and say, Lord, I'm going to obey just as wholeheartedly as that. Holding nothing back. Even my own life. Even if it means risking my own life, risking my possessions, my, my comforts, my plans, my future, I will abandon all based on the direction of your word. There have been some who have done that. Right? That have gone and abandoned everything. That's hard to do. I think of Amy Carmichael. She left everything. Goes to India. Doesn't know anybody. And begins rescuing slave children from the caste system. Boy, there's story after missionary story of people that have done that. People in America have done that. And they don't have to, you don't have to go to another country to do it. Do you know that? You can live with such joyful abandonment to God's word right here in our area. You don't have to go to India to do that. Do you know that? You can be right here in Hermantown, read the word of God, believe in Jesus Christ so fully and confidently that what he says you will do, and he will use you. He will do something phenomenal in your life. But often we do what Joash was doing. We, we say, yes, we know the God of Israel, but we have, a, we have a Baal shrine in the backyard. But let's move on. See what God says here. Um, when I blow the trumpet, verse 18, I, I quote with me, you also blow the trumpets on every side of the old camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now, I don't want, I don't want to put a damper on this. But why the Gideon part? We've, we've learned it as a child, haven't we? The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. What's wrong just with the sword of the Lord? Why the Gideon thing? I'm just asking. We just assume he's the judge. But what, did, what is God trying to teach him? You don't get the glory, Gideon. I don't know. I'm just asking you to consider that. Because the next thing he does is he takes his leadership, he kicks it up a couple of notches, and there's death and destruction in his life, his 70 sons' lives, 
His son Abimelech's life, who murders whole cities. And by the way, you know what? Gideon does it. Gideon murders whole villages of his own Israelites. Because he has forgotten that God gives grace to the humble. And now he's an arrogant man, and he's, he's doing rampage left and right. I don't know. I'm not sure. I, honestly, I don't know, but I'm just wondering, why would he have to say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon? But anyways, he does. Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost, verse 19 says, at the beginning of the middle watch, that's at midnight, so probably this is 12.03, 12.05, midnight. It says, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. So the Israelites didn't move. They, they stood fast, which is a good principle, right? Stand against the wiles of the devil and all of that good stuff. Not to, to make it allegorical, but that's good. I like that. Uh, they stood in their place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. You know, there was a change of the watch, right? So here's what I'm thinking. Maybe. This is kind of neat how God does it. Not to explain the miracle, because it's a miracle. But you've got a third of the guard that are now going back to their tents. You've got a third of the guard now going to the guard posts. And then you have a third that are sleeping. So the third that are sleeping, they get waken up by the trumpets and light. And then they see people coming back and people going forth. And they don't know, who's the, they don't know what's going on. So they, mayhem takes place. It says here in God's word that they cried out the sword of the Lord. And verse 22 when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord, the Lord did it. He's the Savior. He's the judge, the Savior. The Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. It was a God thing. And the army fled to Bethkeda uh, toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Mahola, Bataba. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh. These are the other 22,000 that left. And pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and seize from them the watering places as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. So the, Gideonites, or the, Eph- the people of Ephraim are to be by the Jordan River, so that when the Midianites try to cross the river to go back east, they're blocked by the Israelites. That's what happened. Uh, so then all the men of, of Ephraim gathered together, seized the watering places. Verse 25, they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, that's a wolf and raven in their vernacular. They killed Oreb, get this, they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb, they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Ah, isn't this neat? Where did the angel of the Lord first meet Gideon? At a winepress? And they had a little thing at the rock. So it's kind of like where it started, it now begins to end. The princes die at a, a rock in a wine press. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of the two princes, Oreb and Zeb, to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. And we think there, is his, there his name is in Hebrews 11. As soon as we start chapter 8, there's division. Hey, can I ask a quick question as we close? Why is there ever division amongst God's people? Because of Boasting because of pride. So in chapter 8, the Ephraimites, they attack, they attack Gideon. And now there's division. And then Gideon just goes crazy. 
It's sad. Here are some applications. Number one, we already heard it. God is patient, isn't he? He is so long-suffering. He should have put me away a long time ago. But he just deals with us. He grows us. He's a good heavenly father watching his children grow spiritually. He's such a good heavenly father. Teaching and training, teaching and training. Um, You know, I just think about working with high school students for the last 25 years. Mom, Dad, how did you do it with five kids at at your home? Man, every day I'm like, man, I'm glad that these kids go home. They don't come home with me. It's like, wow. Um, Patience, right, Dad? Mom, patience, long-suffering. They do some crazy things, and you keep loving them, and you keep loving them. They're your children. You have to keep loving them, keep loving them. And God is the same way. He's loving with Gideon. He, He just, okay, Gideon. I'll just eavesdrop on their conversation. I'll give them a dream at the right time, and I'll have them talking about it just when you arrive. I've got it arranged. Just go. I know you need it. I mean, just what a loving father. You know, so he definitely is there to um, teach and to train his children. Number two, boasting is evil. You know what Romans 12 says in verse 3. We always know Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's easy. I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto the Lord, which is a reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind, that you may test or prove that which is the good and holy and acceptable will of God. We always stop there. Anybody know the next verse? Do not think more highly than you ought of yourself. Think soberly about yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. That's the danger. We present our bodies to the Lord and He uses us, and then what do we do? We get arrogant. We get proud. And then God has to do His fatherly thing and humble us. So we, we, we are humbled. So God is patient, boasting is evil. You know, I like this one. I just kind of, as I thought through, number three, aren't you glad God is sovereign? Like, He's sovereign. They have a dream. Uh, at the right time. And they're talking about it, just as Gideon shows up with Pura. Um, God is sovereign over all these things. The, the 300 men with pitchers and lanterns and trumpets, and, and God is working through it all. There, there's just no accidents, right? There, there's just no accident. Even long times of patience and, and delay and, and wondering when is God working or when is he going to finish it. His timing is perfect. He is sovereign. If, even in his timing, he's good. Um, You know G. Campbell Morgan, the great preacher? In 1888, there were 150 seminary students trying to get into a seminary, and he was one of them. They had to take a test, a Bible test, good, and, and then they had to actually preach in front of the faculty of the seminary, and George, or there were 105 who did not enter the seminary, and G. Campbell Morgan was one of them. And he was sad. I mean, he wanted to preach for the Lord. So he, he telegrammed his father with one word, failure. And his dad telegrammed back six words, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. And then G. Campbell Morgan went on to become, I believe, one of the greatest preachers of his age. Isn't that neat? Rejected on earth, accepted by God. It's part of the sovereign plan. Uh, who cares what people think of us? We spend so much of our time trying to make ourselves look good in front of others instead of who we really are. 
And God cares who we really are. That's what he cares about. We're, we're so concerned about the outside and, and what people perceive of us. I, I'm so guilty of that. I'm a Galatians 1.10 person. It's the worst verse in the Bible for me. And my sister Karen loves me so much, she put it on every month. When she gave me a calendar one year. I was like, why would you write Galatians 1.10 on every month? She said, you need it. <laughs> Do you know what it says? It says, I will not be a man pleaser, but I will seek to please God. Because she knows I'm just a man pleaser. That's my heart. I, my sinful heart is, I want everybody to like me and accept me. She wrote it on every month, and I've never forgotten it. <laughs> Even now, she doesn't have to write it, and I still see it on every month. Do, I do not seek to please men, but I do seek to please God. So, um, And then finally, really the detrimental weakness, there's a good weakness, the detrimental weakness came when the people divided. And from that point on, Gideon could never get a handle on life. He couldn't remain faithful to the one God of Israel, the true God of Israel. It's tough to grow in maturity, isn't it? Often with growing in maturity comes some arrogance. We kind of forget the humility of our early days. So let's remember to go back and remember to remain humble before the Lord because then in our weakness, He is made strong. I'm reminded of Zechariah 4.6. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's not by my strength or power, it's by God. Oh, with that, He is pleased, and if that's, that is our mission. That is our goal. Father, thank you for this text. Just incredible how you worked through a small army to bring about a great victory because Gideon was a man who was willing to abandon himself and obey your word fully. May we be men and women like that. May we humble ourselves and, and not think highly of ourselves, but think highly of Christ. We spend a lot of time this week, Father, um, preparing ourselves uh, to gain significance with others, but really we need to concentrate on the heart that we might find our significance in you. So, Father, we thank you for this reminder that you resist to the proud but give grace to the humble. May you grow our church and use this mighty little army, this tiny little army, by the power of spirit to do great things, both here in Hermantown that will spread around the entire world. And we want to give you the glory alone, for we know you share your glory with none other. You alone are God. You alone are King. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you all.